Hello and welcome back to episode 29 of Canberra Conversations and today we are talking about sleep. In order to do so, we are joined by Dr. Nora Simpson, PhD from Stanford University, to really delve into the different areas of our life that a lack of sleep or sleep loss impacts in terms of our cognitive function and our athletic ability as well. For the listeners to this podcast, we all want to excel in our careers and our business, but we also want to perform like athletes as well and sleep forms a key pillar within that. Within the podcast, we talk about the different things that you can do to improve your pre-bed routine and your general sleep hygiene, as well as the physical environment that is the most optimal to sleep in. It was really refreshing to have somebody as intellectual as Nora on the podcast, but importantly, everything that we discuss is completely actionable. And I would say in terms of impact on your improving your life and reaching towards peak performance, this will be in the top three podcasts that we produced so far on the show. I cannot wait for you to listen to it, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you all think. Let's get into it. folks and welcome back to another episode of Canberra Conversations and today we are talking about one of the most important subjects I think we've covered so far in the podcast and I thought who better to bring on than an expert in their field Dr Nora Simpson PhD. Nora welcome to the podcast. Thanks I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So today's subject is all about sleep and Nora is a doctor at Stanford University and I've heard her previously speak around the importance of sleep, particularly for athletes. And with much of my audience being full-time workers who like to train like athletes and behave like athletes, I think it will be relevant to, to everyone that's listening. So can you give a little bit on your background first, Nora, and then we'll get right into the nuts and bolts of sleep. Sure. So I, um, as you mentioned, have a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, my background is in experimental sleep deprivation research. Um, and I spend most of my time now um, doing clinical work and research, uh, learning how to help people sleep better. Um, I do work with Stanford athletes around sleep um, and also have done a little bit of research in that area as well. Yeah, so that elite athlete performance for college, university athletes mm-hmm. and, and being able to experiment with the, the impact of, of, of what sleep means for them. Top level, what are some of the takeaways that you get immediately from athlete, looking at athletes, athletes' performance in relation to sleep? Um, well, I think at a really high level, I think there's a general assumption that athletes are fit and healthy, and that means they sleep great. Um, but when you actually drill down, um, it looks like athletes, particularly elite athletes, may not sleep as well as even the general population. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think particularly for your audience, you know, people who are working full time and training hard, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day, right? And sleep, you know, it often gets a really short end of the stick. And that's a problem because sleep, while you can make trade-offs on a day-to-day basis, has pretty immediate impacts on things like cognitive function, reaction time, illness susceptibility, and has been shown to be related to a number of really important athletic and performance related domains. Yeah, I, I think there's so much within you've touched on there that sleep relates to. And the first of those was was cognitive function. And mm-hmm. for all we want our best possible athletic performance, we want to hit PRs in the gym, we want to improve our physical appearance. Many of us that are will be listening to the podcast are knowledge workers during the day and they need to mm-hmm. perform at their best in front of a computer. So not even considering the fact at six o'clock you're going to go and do your workout of the day or whatever your, 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 your poison is when it comes to exercise. If you're not well slept and well rested, your performance in your nine to five, which pays your bills can Mm -hmm. be poorer. And I think that's something that a lot of people overlook when it comes to sleep. I think a lot of people like yourself, Nora, getting the word out there in terms of the importance of it and the value Mm -hmm. of it, but just how much impacts across your life is 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 huge and i know that from from personal experience as well so from some of the studies that you've done in terms of 
somebody that is got has had some sleep loss or some sleep deprivation what are some mm-hmm. of the first things to deteriorate within their day-to-day well this draws from a huge field of researchers not certainly just myself i've only done a small touch of this research myself but it is the sleep research field is great and it's huge and it's growing and it's allowed us to see that when you're not getting enough sleep your attention is decreased your executive function the ability to have these really kind of sophisticated thoughts and making decisions and holding kind of this idea of multitasking as well as we can do any of that can be impacted Um, we also have been shown to make riskier decisions so if you're someone who may be in business you know you may not be making your most kind of rational and level-headed decision if you're pretty sleep deprived Um, and Creativity, which I think is really important for a lot of people who have jobs in business, um, is also negatively impacted by not getting enough sleep. Yeah, so straight away, huge impacts on life across all, across all areas. And one of the areas that you touched on there was making riskier decisions. I find that making decisions at all is worse when my sleep's worth. So for example, willpower. So mm-hmm. making the choice between the nutritious meal that you've brought in for your lunch to the office uh-huh. or going out for maybe a sandwich, a burger or something that doesn't quite meet that. When, uh-huh. my, sl- when my sleep's been poorer, my ability to adhere is lower mm-hmm. as well. And I certainly have noticed that from a a willpower decision-making perspective. Yeah, there's all, so I think that's true. And you raised a lovely example. It's like we planned this because when you don't get enough sleep, you actually tend to make worse choices about the food that you eat. You tend to gravitate towards those snack foods, foods that may be the less healthy choices. And there's been research conducted, and I've been involved in a very small part of this that shows that when you're sleep deprived, the hormones that actually control a lot of your appetite and feeling satiated when you eat food, those can be altered when you're not getting enough sleep. So all of those things together, the willpower, the cognitive functioning, the actual physiological maybe drives to eat different foods can all make it a lot harder for you to kind of hit these goals that you're working towards. I do find it funny when people focus, particularly athletes, focus on the best training plan, the best diet plan, but then if they're not focused on recovery and sleep is probably tantamount mm-hmm. amongst that, then you're, you're kind of handicapping yourself in those other areas in order to, to, to do your best. Mm-hmm. From a fitness perspective, then we've talked a lot about kind of cognitive function. From a mm-hmm. fitness perspective, what are mm-hmm. athletes or everyday people exposing themselves to in that respect when they have a lack of sleep? You mean in terms of athletic performance or physical performance? So the amount of really large studies conducted directly in athletes is relatively small. And there's a lot of nuance there if you can imagine. If you think of your sport, if you're someone who's in athletics, the skills and abilities that a football player may need are very different from a distance swimmer. Right. So someone who's doing weightlifting is going to have different needs or different physical abilities than someone who's doing sprints. And so there is some variability in how kind of insufficient sleep impacts those domains. The the domains that seem to be most impacted are in sports requiring speed, tactical strategy and technical skill. And if you think about how the insufficient sleep can really impact your thinking, you can see uh, how those domains may be most affected. The strength domains, the research is a little bit mixed. Accuracy, like dart throwing, seems to be more. So there is some variability in terms of the direct relationship between insufficient sleep and athletic performance, because that's a pretty broad area. That's interesting because, like you said, you would assume with this impact on cognitive function, when you come to maybe playing a team sport and tactically, like you say, you're less able to follow the game plan. You're less able to execute the the planned Mm -hmm. moves. So, for example, in basketball or football or rugby, you're 
team move or whatever it is that you're trying to execute on or your formation that you're trying to stay in, uh-huh. you're less likely to be able to do that if you are somebody that's not nailing that variable of sleep, but right. potentially strength-wise. So if I was going in and training a typical bodybuilding style session with um, mm-hmm. maybe chest, shoulders, and, and, and triceps, my strength might not be affected initially by maybe one night of poor sleep. Not it. And again, it depends. One night of poor sleep, what does that mean? Does that mean that you get an hour less sleep than you normally do? Are you well rested before you start this? You know, do you have an all nighter at work that you're kind of just kind of going around the clock and then you're hitting the gym? So part of this is the magnitude. Um, but you may be able to kind of get away with sort of not being as directly impacted um, after a night of insufficient sleep, but you may be more at risk for injury, right? So that's another big domain that is, I think, very related to athletic performance, but really under-recognized, right? You have to be physically healthy to be able to perform athletically, right? If you can't make it to practice, you can't make it to the competition what's the point, right? You can't demonstrate your ability. You can't get that PR because you're not physically healthy enough to do so. And there's a big relationship between not getting enough sleep and getting more injuries. That's really interesting because like you say, if for example, I sleep poorly on a Monday night and I'm training on a Tuesday evening, it might not necessarily impact my performance or ability to beat my training logbook and get a few more reps or whatever it is I'm trying to do on the Tuesday. But long-term, I might have potentially caused myself some injury. My mm-hmm. recovery will be poorer. So my performance the next day, the day after that, it has mm-hmm. a domino effect further down the line rather than maybe on that immediate session. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's all sorts of those relationships. You can also add into that mix the fact that when you're not getting enough sleep, your immune function is compromised, right? So you know, maybe you touch the door handle on your way out of the gym and somebody who has a cold test right before you, you're more likely that you're going to get sick, right? And that's going to also have an impact on your training schedule and your physical ability. Yeah, exactly. So injuries, illness, poor cognitive function, potential loss of um, ability to adhere to a game plan or make good decisions. Mm-hmm. There's lots of negatives associated with what we would term sleep loss or sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm do we have an exact definition for what sleep loss is in terms of what that would look like for the average person or do we have like Uh a a goal that we want to work towards as a a number of hours or a quality of sleep yeah that's a great question but a complicated one so the national sleep foundation says that most adults need between seven and nine hours of sleep with some needing in this much bigger range of six to 11 hours. So there are some people, it's relatively few that seem to do fine with relatively little sleep and some people need a lot more. Um, And it's hard to tell sometimes on an individual basis because people, humans as a species are not awesome at recognizing their own level of fatigue or sleepiness. Okay, so we know from experimental studies that we bring people into a lab and we sleep deprive them day after day after day and their performance on these sophisticated tests, as you might expect, gets worse and worse and worse, right? And that's not very surprising. But then we also ask them, how are you feeling? How sleepy are you feeling? And what we see in the lab is that people will say for the first few days, like, oh, this is horrible. I'm so sleepy. I can't do this. And then a couple of days in, they start to say things like, you know, like, I'm tired, but like, I'm getting the hang of this. I think I'm getting used to it. Like, I'm kind of acclimating. And meanwhile, their performance is continuing to deteriorate. So you have this separation between what your actual performance is like and kind of your assessment of that, right? This is a little similar. And there have been some studies testing this that, you know, have related this to alcohol use, right? Like, after you've had a couple of drinks, you may not be the best at assessing how impaired you are. And there are a lot of similarities with sleep. The more sleep deprived you get, you know, sometimes, particularly if you're working for a deadline and you're training really hard, you might not be the best person to assess like whether you're sleepy or getting enough sleep. You almost need to look through the eyes of somebody else in in, in some respects, as you've said. So your own self-assessment after a period of 
maybe feeling not fantastic for a, for a period of time, you just pick up, that becomes the new normal and you're Correct. like, Oh, this is, this is just how I feel. Mm-hmm. Even though the way you feel is because you're not nailing one of the most important variables with Correct. respect to sleep. Totally. It's quite funny that you're, you, you lose that self-awareness and alcohol is a prime example of that. You lose the self-awareness to accurately assess where your capabilities lie, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And that maybe sounds harsh, but there's probably people out there listening that have slept poorly for such a long time that they just assume this is how you feel in the morning or this is how you feel mm-hmm. during the day in terms of energy levels and, and function. And they think, oh, I'm functioning okay. Mm-hmm. But it might be that they're chronically sleep deprived for, for a very long period. Mm-hmm. Or they're supporting this system that they've developed with a lot of caffeine, like a lot of kind of kind of high demands, kind of situations that they're putting themselves in, which really require a lot from your mind and body and can help you feel more alert, even if you are not getting sufficient sleep. Yeah, something I've heard you speak about before, Nora, was with respect to CEOs and that kind of hustle grind mentality where mm-hmm. many of us in, in, in my space in business development can fall into because we want to be the best. We want to be the future leaders of tomorrow. We want to be buying the fanciest car. We want to be hitting our bonuses. We want to be getting the next house. And there's a, almost a kind of uh, that toxic uh, mindset where, oh, well, sleep is one of the first things that we can sack off or, or put mm-hmm. to the back burner. But that's absolutely not the case. And one of the examples I heard you give was around CEOs actually being willingly tested around their, uh, their, their sleep quality. Can you share that with my listeners? Sure. Yeah. So my um, graduate school advisor, he has a huge lab, does many, many excellent studies. Um, sleep depriving people in the lab. He works with NASA astronauts. He does a lot of studies with the truck drivers and the kind of truck driving safety, but he has, you know, because his belief I think um, is that getting enough sleep is really important. And that again, this recognition that some people may not be aware that they're not getting enough sleep. So I'm not sure whether he still has this, but he used to have this open challenge to any CEO to come in who says like, I, I am like perfectly functioning on four hours sleep, of sleep and come into the lab and sleep in the lab and be tested and be measured and prove that out. And at least to my knowledge, no one has ever taken him up on that. And at this point, it's been a while since I've been in graduate school. And I think we would have heard about it had it happened. So exactly. no one's stepping into that challenge. The proof would be in the pudding if, um, if somebody was to come in and actually sleep under the conditions of actually four hours a night and then prove that their function is still at peak. Absolutely. And there, there, are, there is a, um, a small population of people and there's some kind of genetic um, association here that seem to need shorter sleep, but it's a very small proportion of the population and it kind of tends to run in families and it's it's not typically your kind of average show like you or me that really falls into that group. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like you, like I say, there may, there may be some of the listeners that are very fortunate and they fall into that high performer despite lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. But many of, the, many of the, the people that are maybe short sleepers or limited num- amount of hours sleepers will just be chronically used to mm-hmm. being underslept for, for, for long periods of time, which is unfortunate. What is the kind of process then? Because we've said seven to nine hours is typically where the average person needs to be mm-hmm. quote unquote adequately slept. Mm-hmm. Can you bank sleep through things like naps or is it better to get it in a, in, in, in a one-off, <coughs> one-off run in the evening? Well, I think the, the ideal really is to get a sufficient amount of sleep at night. Um, I think that's the ideal, um, but it's really not feasible for some people due to work and lifestyle and training constraints, right? Let's say that you're like, you play ice hockey and your, you know, rink time is super early in the morning. I mean, you're going to get up and get there for that rink time because that's what you can get. So you may not have the opportunity to get all the sleep that you need at night. And if you're sleeping well at night, you know, there is the opportunity to take naps during the day to have a little bit of recovery sleep. You know, if you know you're going to have a couple of nights of short sleep, it can be helpful. Again, if you're a good sleeper to make sure that you're really getting into bed on time for the few nights before um, to maybe bank a little bit of that good sleep. Um, But I think it's important to also think about the fact that if you're not a good sleeper 
and you're having trouble sleeping, you might have some signs or symptoms of insomnia, this idea of kind of catching up on sleep during the day can actually rob you of sleep at night. If yeah. you're not sleeping well at night, taking long naps during the day isn't going to be helpful. It's just going to kind of give you little kind of dribs and drabs of sleep across the 24-hour period. And that actually isn't going to be as restorative as a longer block of sleep. That's really interesting because I think, I think many of us have been guilty in the past of, oh, I didn't sleep great last night. I'll just have a nap when I get home from work. And then you, go, you try and go to bed at your normal time. So half past 10, 11 o'clock, <laughs> half past 11, whatever it is. And you're lying there staring at the ceiling thinking, I should not have had that nap. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the danger lies when you try and make up for lost time almost during mm-hmm. the day and then right. impact your evening sleep, which ultimately you're kind of, um, one of the, a UK phrase would be, you'd be robbing Peter to pay Paul. So you're, yes. you're, you're, bor- you're borrowing from uh, today and uh, tomorrow's going to be impacted because of it. Absolutely. I use that phrase frequently in my work. I have to say that phrase is not as well recognized here in the States, but it has many truths. My listeners will resonate with it. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> so we've, we can potentially bank sleep in some ways if we're a good sleeper. That's such an important caveat. And like you say, it's actually assumed that athletes on the whole are good sleepers, but it turns out in general, it's quite often the case that they're worse sleepers. And I suppose maybe some of the factors relate to that in terms of maybe they, they train late in the evening, maybe lots of caffeine mm-hmm. stimulants before, mm-hmm. before bed. And I've dropped the, the C word caffeine. Many of my listeners will be massive uh, <laughs> pre-workout fans, um, monster energy. Um, I myself like a, a white monster ultra before I train, <laughs> but I'm trying to move it further, further forward in the day to try and keep it mm-hmm. away from my, my evening. Can you mm-hmm. maybe give us a little bit of insight on the impact of caffeine on sleep and maybe some recommendations around hygiene. Yeah. Yeah. Caffeine is, it's a tough one. And it's one that I I had not realized how much elite athletes use slash overutilize caffeine. And so this is a really big area for um, a lot of athletes who are trying to improve their sleep. So quantity is an issue and timing is an issue. So caffeine has a pretty long half-life right? You're thinking at least four hours, but for many people, we're looking at six to eight hours or longer if you have a slow metabolism or you're taking certain medications that prolong it. So from a sleep perspective, the ideal is to end caffeine use after lunch, right? Which means that your body will have metabolized enough of it that it won't have a negative impact on sleep at that time. Um, And physiologically, what caffeine does is that it sits inside your brain in something called adenosine receptors. And adenosine is the kind of biological marker of your body's sleep drive or sleep need. And so if caffeine is blocking those receptors, your body isn't recognizing that you've accumulated enough sleep drive to mean it's time for bed, it's time to go to sleep. And it can be really hard to initiate sleep or to feel like you're sleeping deeply. Yeah, that's that's an incredibly important point. And I think part of the reason we use caffeine for training and performance is because it masks that fatigue, like you said. So when it comes to sleeping, the last thing we want to do is mask fatigue. We want to feel tired and sufficiently drowsy or whatever term you want to use to help us nod off. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're still kind of have that buzzing around in your head, then it it's it, it stopping you. And when you speak about half-life, for me, what really hit home with me was when I was thinking about the fact that if I spark and down a, a Monster Ultra at half past five in the evening and it's 150 milligrams of caffeine, I've still got 75 milligrams of caffeine in my system in four or five hours when I'm looking to wind down and go to bed. Mm-hmm. And that's not optimal for, for sleep at all. So even, appreciate you've said lunchtime, but let's get it a couple others further back, a couple hours further back and just try and get it away. And mm-hmm. if you are somebody that's super reliant on stimulus for, for your training sessions after work, then you can maybe use like a pump product that has no caffeine or a, a, a kind of non-stimulant product mm-hmm. that might enable your training and try and stick to the morning coffee and, and cut it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also the habituation aspect to caffeine, right? So you want to be able to use caffeine strategically and strategically doesn't mean all the time, right? Because then you're not using it strategically, you're using it all the time. And that may not allow you to really 
reap the benefits of caffeine on your actual performance, right? So you really want to think about kind of both using it strategically for performance, right? You may choose to use it before a competition that's later in the day when you have a one-off competition. And I think that would be a totally reasonable trade-off. But doing it sort of every night is not strategic. That's using it every day. Habitual. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I think many people in my community are very guilty of that, including myself and in, on, on a number of occasions. And I'm glad you've addressed that. One of the other areas around sleep hygiene I want to touch on, and you mentioned it earlier in relation to um, kind of self-awareness, is alcohol. There's a common, well, hopefully not too common nowadays, but a common belief that maybe a glass of wine before bed or um, in Scotland, maybe a whiskey before bed can mm-hmm. help you get off into a deeper sleep. Mm-hmm. Can, you, um, can you maybe address that for us, Nora? Absolutely. Yeah, so... Alcohol is a tricky one because when someone comes in and they say, look, if I have a whiskey before bed, I fall asleep faster. My answer is you're right. It does. So alcohol can speed up the time it takes you to fall asleep. So you may fall asleep faster. The problem is that as alcohol is broken down in your body, those byproducts, instead of serving as a central nervous system depressant, which is what helps you fall asleep more quickly, The byproducts are actually a stimulant. So you'll find that your sleep is of poor quality. You may wake up in the middle of the night. You know, people who may kind of have had a time in their lives where they've gone out and they've drank a whole bunch. You know, it's not uncommon for that person to fall asleep like a rock and then kind of wake up in the middle of the night and be kind of awake for a while before they can fall back asleep. And that's the breakdown of the alcohol in the system. So using alcohol as a sleep aid is really not recommended. You know, if you, I don't have anything against alcohol use, you want to use it responsibly and you want to ideally, you know, end your use a couple of hours before bedtime. So you are not kind of stuck in this cycle where you're maybe falling asleep a little bit faster, but having a really negative impact on the quality of your sleep. Yeah, it kind of comes back to that robbing Peter to pay Paul because you get to sleep initially very easily, which I guess for people with uh, symptoms or signs of insomnia or other sleep disorders, that's the hard part, nodding off. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, your quality of the sleep throughout the rest of the evening and the rest of the night is really poor. And you're not going to wake up as refreshed as if you weren't reliant on that to get to Mm -hmm. sleep initially. Correct. Absolutely. In terms of other areas for, for sleep hygiene, I know I do a few things, and I'll be interested to see if you bring them up before I have to. Um, <laughs> what are some of the areas that people can improve their, their sleep hygiene and their pre-bed routine almost um, mm-hmm. to, to maximize the quality of their sleep? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head even with the intro to this subject, right? So I think the, the biggest thing that people can do is to protect ideally an hour before bed for a wind down period. So no work, no trying to finish up those last minute things, catching up on emails, but really having some downtime to allow your brain and your body to unwind so that you are in a mental and physical state that makes it likely that when it's time for bed, you are able to fall asleep easily and you sleep well. This really, in kind of our 24-hour society today with many things competing for our attention and the fact that we can access anything anytime we want on the internet, you know, this is what frequently takes a hit. You can't go 100 miles an hour during the day and screech to zero at bedtime and expect to sleep like a champion. Just not going to happen. Yeah, I I think that's so interesting because like you say, we've got that 24 hour on kind of instant gratification lifestyle with our phones, our laptops, our, mm-hmm. our, our work, our lifestyle. And that hour period before bed where we go from 100 down to 50, down to 40, down mm-hmm. to zero kind of gradually is invaluable when it comes to being in a, in a ready state to mm-hmm. sleep. And I, I, really, I really like that idea of, of, of a wind down rather than like you say, zero, uh, 100 to zero back the way, um, which, 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 which isn't healthy. What, what kind of things can we do within that hour um, to prepare ourselves for bed then, Nora? 
You know, people do lots of different things during this period of time. You know, you can read, you can watch TV, as long as it's not something that leaves you really feeling geared up afterwards. Yeah. Um, if you're someone who has learned about and enjoys meditation, doing some meditation or a relaxing yoga routine, a lot of athletes like stretching during this period. Um, that can be helpful. I wouldn't like pull out the foam roller, which is, can be quite painful, frankly. And it's something that I actually have people do when they're trying to stay awake. Right. So if I ask people to stay awake really late and they're having trouble, I say like, get out the foam roller, like roll, roll it out. Cause that's really quite activating, but doing some gentle stretching can be nice to loosen and relax your body before sleep. You know, it doesn't, specifically matter what you're doing you want to find something that you like something that you enjoy and find relaxing it could be as simple as talking with your partner you know about pleasant and light topics um you know some people will you know groom their pets if they have a you know cat or dog at home you know people do all sorts of stuff lots of different options then to to, to wind down and i guess one of the things that I've certainly tried to do is get off my phone earlier. I know you mentioned, yeah. I know you mentioned TV there and mm-hmm. I know that if I watch something particularly stimulating on Netflix, like you say, it mm-hmm. will appear in my dreams. Like I will feature, I will feature in that film and, <laughs> uh, and, and that, and that can be a challenge. But likewise, if I'm on my phone right up until the, the, the minute I, I go to sleep, I'll think about some of the posts of the people that I've seen on Instagram or mm-hmm. maybe something that I read on Twitter that was controversial. I'll be mulling that over in my head. And so absolutely, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with the concept of blue light. Can you mm-hmm. maybe explain a little bit more from uh, from your expert level? Sure. Sure. So um, blue light is emitted from most personal devices and computer screens. So your laptops, your cell phones, your tablets, and um, blue light can have a negative impact on your sleep because it can suppress and delay the timing of release of melatonin, which is a sleep promoting hormone that your body naturally produces. So there's an idea that if you're spending a lot of time kind of glued to your phone or your tablet in the evening, you may be kind of reducing the amount of melatonin that your body produces to help you sleep. Now, there is some nuance there. There's some very well done experimental studies that have shown that you can really suppress melatonin release um, with this blue light exposure. But I think of those studies in some ways as proof of concept studies. So they have participants in relatively dim light for most of the day, and then they have them sit for two hours with a tablet right before bed. And, you know, part of this has to do with contrast. So if you're out in the middle of the day and you're getting lots of sunlight, not like our typical office workers, but let's say kind of you are out and about with your job, you're outside a lot, you know, the impact of that blue light is probably less. Um, but for the average Joe who sits in office lighting during the day and, you know, isn't getting a lot of natural light exposure, that blue light in the evening can make it harder to fall asleep um, and make you less interested in going to bed at your goal bedtime. And this is especially true, unfortunately, for people who tend to be night owls, right? Yeah. They tend to be particularly susceptible to that blue light in the evening and it can really make it hard. Yeah, I think that's a great caveat where if you're getting a lot of sunlight during the day, unfortunately in Scotland and the UK, that's not always the case, (laughs) then you're less susceptible to the blue light. But like you say, if we're office workers, particularly with that kind of really sheer overhead lighting, I Mm -hmm. understand that that can be more of a challenge that if we then come back into our our bed, bed environment that if we're then consuming more blue light, like you say, the receptors are, 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 are challenged in terms of uh, melatonin production and it's it mirrors what we said about caffeine where it's almost like the anti-sleep or the the sleep quality reduction um, mm-hmm. mechanism that we are setting ourselves up to not have as good quality a, mm-hmm. an evening I'll, I'll i'll share with you something and I, I wonder if you've done any research around this or, or know anything around this but i found particularly when i finished university and i started getting into uh, a sales job and a business development role I'd be thinking about like 
what am I doing the next day in terms of uh, phone calls, emails, targets, what, what's going on? And then when I started to run a, a fitness Instagram page, I was thinking about what content I would post the next day. And if mm-hmm. I didn't write it down on, my, on a notepad on my bedside table, it would go round and round and round. Whereas mm-hmm. I found when I introduced a, a, a pad on the side of my table initially, and now I've actually graduated up to a gratitude journal. Okay. Um, I found my sleep quality is much better and I'm less likely to have those kind of rushing thoughts about mm-hmm. the next day and what I need. Absolutely. To is there, is mm-hmm. there any kind of research around that, Nora, that, that, or am I just anecdotally? Um, no, I mean, I think this is actually one of the recommendations that we provide people. So I do a lot of treatment for people who have insomnia disorder. So people who can't sleep despite giving themselves every opportunity to sleep, they just can't get enough sleep. Um, and one of the techniques that we use in the treatment is actually called closure to the day. And, you know, you're describing exactly why this technique is helpful because we're very busy. There's a lot going on in our heads and we tend to just keep a lot of thoughts going. It's like there's a juggler in the back there that, that keeps kind of all of those ideas active. And that takes a lot of mental energy and brain activity. And we don't want that during sleep. So it's a great idea to, at the end of your productive day, whenever that is. If you're a nine to five worker and then you're off duty, it could be a five. If you're someone who kind of has a second business or you're trying to balance work, sports, and kids all in the mix, it may be kind of later in the evening. But you take a couple of minutes and having a notepad to jot things down is great to really think about, okay, what are the kind of the lingering to-dos? Where are you leaving things for today? And where are you going to pick things up again tomorrow? So that really sets kind of a nice boundary so that if you happen even to have any of those thoughts flying through later in the evening, you can remind yourself, look, I wrapped things up already for today. I'm going to pick it up again tomorrow. And if you were like, no, no, I, 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 I just, this is a new thing that I have to remember. You just write it down and then you let go of it. So you don't have to carry it with you because that, as you mentioned, can certainly impact sleep quality. Um, but it also can really interfere with sleep. I'm glad I've got a term for it now. Closure to the day. I like there that. There you lot. go. Um, Sounds fancy, doesn't it? It does. It does. And sometimes, <laughs> it's all about branding sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it? There you go. We, we can't sell a concept unless it's a little bit sexy. So that sounds good. And f- for me, it's that reassurance piece that don't worry, whatever you've got swirling around, I'm going to address it tomorrow and here's how. And mm-hmm. it gives me that reassurance and peace of mind that I can go to bed and I know that things are in motion tomorrow when I get up and I start my day and I, 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 I get going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sleep really is a process of letting go. You need to be able to have some time that's protected for being off duty. And if you feel like you're needing to try to keep track of all these things and you're chasing down loose ends when you're heading into the sleep period, you're setting up a conflict between your wake system and your sleep system. So closure to the day is one strategy that really can be helpful in kind of defining the productive day and allowing you to set things aside, be off duty at night, and then pick them up and be productive and kind of really proactive the next day. That's great. So we've spoken around things like caffeine, alcohol, getting off our phones earlier, closure to the day. What about Mm -hmm. things in terms of our physical environment, about how our room looks or what our bed is like? Are there Mm -hmm. any trends that you would um, identify which can lead to better quality sleep? Well, you know, the, the, the old phrase is kind of, you want to sleep like you're sleeping in a cave, but with a comfortable mattress, right? So you want it to be cool. You want it to be dark um, and you want it to be quiet. So, you know, I'm much more interested in making sure those bases are hit than, you know, having a recommendation for a very specific type of mattress. If you think your mattress is awesome, it's awesome. If you find it uncomfortable, you know, you might want to think about, you know, can you get a foam mattress topper? Are you going to get a different kind of bed? Um, The heavy hitters are things like it's really hard to sleep when it's hot, Yeah. right? As you fall asleep, your body reduces its core body temperature. That's one of the natural things that happens as we fall asleep. And if your body is already challenged to regulate its own temperature because you're sleeping when it's hot, that can make it even harder to fall asleep and sleep deeply, right? So 
having lots of ambient light in the room can also be hard, right? So most adults don't sleep with a nightlight. Certainly it's fine if you do, but you know, many adults have lots of things plugged in, lots of electronics, and you want to make sure yeah. those are powered down, they're turned off. Little pinpricks of light don't bother me. Um, having some kind of track lighting to the door if your room is really pitch black also is fine, but you want to make sure the room is pretty dark and you want to make sure it's pretty quiet. And if it's not, you want to think about how you can address that. Um, whether it be something as simple as earplugs or something that's more tech savvy, like getting a white noise app on your phone. Yeah, that's fantastic. And really actionable stuff there, because sometimes when you listen to experts in the field and they tell you about this top level recommendation that maybe costs thousands of pounds and people kind of straight away shut themselves off from that and think, oh, that's not for me. Whereas Mm -hmm. sleep in a cave that's extremely actionable because if we can if if we can make our room dark if we can make it quiet and if we can make sure it's fairly cool then mm-hmm. we're going to put ourselves in a position and an environment to sleep better so i know you mentioned earplugs to deal with the quiet side of things or the white noise mm-hmm. app um for me for darkness my my room where i grew up my family home was fantastic i had a velox blind and it was pitch dark my room okay. and my room and my flat that I now own, no matter what I do, my blinds, it's not pitch dark. So I have an eye mask and, okay. and that has been a game changer. And particularly when outside the COVID period, I'm staying in hotels overnight with work before meetings, wherever I'm in the country, mm-hmm. the eye mask is invaluable because you don't know what kind of environment you go into in a hotel. And mm-hmm. I know hotels when it comes to the cool side of things are always terrible. When you go into a hotel room, it's always so hot. So straight in, aircon on full, and <laughs> try and make sure it's a, make mm-hmm. sure it's a nice cool, cool room. Year round in Scotland, we don't have a massive problem with heat when it comes to going to sleep at right. night. But on the on the nights that it is particularly hot, I found a, a warm shower before bed can help mm-hmm. me get into bed and almost go through that cooling down process. Oh. I don't know if that's a. So that wow, you really are like intuitively picking up some of the lesser known strategies to improve your sleep. Actually, oh here we so, go. I know you didn't know it, did you? So there is um, some data showing that a technique that's called passive heating, which is usually done with a, a bath, it tends to be a little bit more effective, but gently heating your body in the hour to hour and a half before bed can actually help you fall asleep more quickly. Um, and it is because your body does, as I mentioned earlier, drop its core body temperature as you fall asleep. And so if you've just heated your body a little bit in that warm bath or shower when you get out your body vasodilates the blood vessels dilate so that you release heat and start that cooling process that kind of accelerates that dive into a cooler body temperature and allows you to be able to fall asleep potentially a bit more quickly yeah when i heard that the first time i i thought it sounded counterintuitive on a hot summer's night in july or whatever to get in a hot shower because you would think oh why why would I do that? But like you say, there's a, there's, there's science behind it. So maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe my head's not always full of nonsense, which is good. Well, that, that actually is a strategy that you can use all the time. Um, and, you know, depending on how hot you actually are getting at night, if it's like super hot, that strategy probably won't work because it's, you know, the baseline is too high already. But, you know, for, for a lot of temperature bands, I think that can be helpful. Excellent. Now we spoke about in the lab conditions, tracking people's sleep and understanding mm-hmm. how long they've slept for and being able to measure it versus their performance later on. What do you think of things like sleep trackers, like the, the most common one in the UK will be a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of those kind of apps or I think sleep cycle or is one of the common mm-hmm. ones that, that, we, that, that we have? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's pros and cons and it depends how you're using them. So if you are someone who is saying, look, I've identified that I might not be getting enough sleep for optimal performance. I want to try to improve this. So you get some baseline data for yourself and then you set a goal that, okay, instead of, you know, being in bed for, you know, six, seven hours and sleeping six and a half, you want to be in bed for seven and a half hours and sleeping seven. Yeah. That's a great tool to track your sleep using a Fitbit. You know, if you sleep well, do you need a Fitbit? No, but it is kind of nice to see your data displayed. I mean, I think one of the 
nice things about those devices is that they usually summarize the data in a way that's compelling and motivating if you're trying to make behavior change. So I like it from that, uh, from that aspect. When you're looking at things like, oh, like this night I got a lot of deep sleep and this night I got a lot of light sleep, you know, those apps and devices are doing a better job at getting accurate there, but yep. they're not fantastic. And it also begs the question of, okay, then what? Right. I like recommendations and strategies that are very actionable. Like if someone comes in and said, look, this night I didn't get a lot of deep sleep. I need help with that. I don't have a lot of tools to change that. Yeah. Right. So looking at sleep trackers for duration and quantity, I think can be quite helpful. Um, you know, looking at the type of sleep that you're getting, you know, I think can be less helpful. Yeah. I think hopefully by now people realize how, potentially inaccurate they are with regards to like calories burned in a workout or maintenance level calories within a day that might maintain your body weight or lose your body weight whatever you're you're looking to track so it's only expected potentially that when it comes to sleep it's only as accurate as maybe it is in in other areas so i think that's Mm -hmm. an important point you've addressed and people swearing by it can be maybe a risk especially if they've not addressed some of the sleep hygiene and evening routine things that we've spoken about this evening, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. you're almost um, trying to run before you can walk when it comes to to sleep quality. And I think speaking on that subject, one of the last things I'd like to cover with you, Nora, is with regards to sleep supplementation, which is really the the icing on the cake, I I suppose, when it comes to optimizing um, this key component. Mm-hmm. And for sleep supplementation, do you mean sort of taking herbal supplements or nutritional Something supplements to help support sleep? Bed, yes. Yeah. So, so, or, mm-hmm. or, well, I don't know when you would take it, but um, for example, some of the common ones that people have asked me about before, um, ZMA, um, CBD oil or, or, mm-hmm. or capsules, what kind of um, research is there around that? And equally important a role does it actually play? Yeah, so supplements are complicated, like many things I've talked about, um, in particular because um, supplements, unlike prescription medications, you don't have a lot of funded research to study their efficacy, right? There's not a lot of kind of money behind kind of saying that valerian root is helpful for your sleep. So there's not a lot of large-scale trials looking at that. Um, you know, my guess is that there are some supplements that are probably going to turn out to be pretty effective for sleep, but we just don't have a lot of evidence to recommend things in either way. And CBD is a good example because there's limited research on CBD. Um, There's many different types of strains, right, even within this class of CBD and amounts in sort of what modality you're ingesting the CBD in. Um, And the data suggests that higher doses of CBD may be helpful for sleep, but lower doses may interfere with sleep. So then the question is, well, how much is too much? And we don't necessarily really know. Um, CBD can also have some funky impacts on dreams. So you may have a lot of vivid dreams with CBD. Um, My own experience with ZMA is similar to that, Nora, in terms of quite wild, vivid dreams that can be almost unsettling at points. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those dreams with CBD, at least, can also persist for some period of time after you've stopped using it too. So it's not like, oh, if you stop taking it, kind of the dreams will stop immediately. When I think about supplements, um, I think I have a pretty pragmatic perspective. If you can make some changes that don't involve putting a substance inside your body to help you sleep better, I would probably go that route. If you're really having problems sleeping, like you have a sleep disorder, you have insomnia, you're really struggling with sleep, then I would recommend that you engage in a research-supported, evidence-based treatment for that sleep disorder. For things like insomnia, medication is an option. The treatment that I do, which is the gold standard treatment for insomnia, is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, And that actually is the gold standard treatment for insomnia at this point. 
So rather than have someone who's really struggling with sleep, like experimenting with all these different supplements to say like, did this work? Like it worked on one night, but not the next night. And, oh, I'm trying to figure out like why that night was so poor. I'd rather have them just do a treatment for the disorder that they have that we know is likely to be effective. Yeah. I think that's, that's such a, an actionable point. As, as you said, that's what you want to come across as. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so keen to get you on as a guest in order because so many people maybe think, Oh, if I buy, if I spend 30 pounds a month on ZMA or 30 pounds a month on CBD oil, that will fix my sleep, but they've not addressed Mm -hmm. their hygiene, their evening routine. They've not addressed their sleep environment with regards to sleeping in a cave. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's, it's kind of reaching for that kind of magic pill or answer to their, to their Mm -hmm. problem when they haven't addressed the basic fundamentals, which hopefully throughout this episode we've really hit on as well as some of the top level impact that poorer sleep has when it, when it Mm -hmm. comes to things. Nora, where's the best place for people to connect with you? My audience love to reach out after they, after they hear a good episode. So where, where should they get in touch with you? Sure. They are welcome to contact me via email. Um, my Stanford email is probably best. That is N Simpson, like the TV show at stanford.edu. Perfect. I'll, I'll pop that in the, in the show notes below. And for those that are extremely inquisitive in terms of, research heavy is there any mm-hmm. particular papers you would direct them towards of yours that you think would be helpful particularly those that are focused on that athletic performance um i think there's a, a number of very reasonable papers there's certainly the review paper that i published which you're more than welcome to share with your audience there are some other sport specific papers the um the one that has very compelling data on expanding or extending your sleep duration and the kind of really whopping benefits that it can have for performance um, is Sherry Ma's paper with Stanford basketball players. That's a very widely cited paper. Um, The results are somewhat astounding in terms of both how much sleep people added and the absolutely phenomenal impact it has on performance. So that can be a very motivating piece to read. Um, I think those are pretty good places to start. Right. So those are good places for people to start. Hopefully you've all enjoyed this episode. I know I certainly have had from a selfish perspective, picked up a few more tips to improve my own sleep. Please take a screenshot, pop it in your Instagram story, share it with a friend that is always moaning and complaining about their quality of sleep and how their energy levels are throughout the day. And I'll be back to speak to you all again next week.